Welcome to the latest edition of Cantillon Effects, After the Fall of Kaffa. With each passing day it becomes more apparent just what will be the appalling consequences of the governmental rush to deprive hundreds of millions of people of their liberties and livelihoods, deny them routine medical care, disrupt their children's education and drive their hard-won businesses into ruin, all the while failing egregiously in the state's proclaimed duty of protecting the most vulnerable from this nasty, somewhat selective, but otherwise not particularly remarkable disease. With each passing day, the spin doctors and snake oil salesmen, the shaman and the scientists, bamboozle us with conflicting projections of the progress of the virus, offer us bluntly anecdotal tales of rare, if horrific, complications, describe wildly varying prognoses and pathologies, and bandy about more stories of treatments, whether prospective or pre-existing, some time for maximum political effect, and others to serve for a quick pump and dump of some dubious biotech stock or other. With each passing day, more, not less, uncertainty is added to the list of possible interdictions, infringements on our freedoms, violations of our privacy, and narrowings of our range of lifestyle choices, we are told the conquest of this disease demands. More, not less, uncertainty as to the likely duration of the imposition of such strictures, and hence of the length of the sentence summarily pronounced upon us by the star chambers of epidemiology. With each passing day, too, we hear of yet more panicky measures aimed at propping up the crumbling masonry of economic life, or, if one takes a less charitable view of what is being enacted, of nationalising or co-opting much of what used to pass for free enterprise in a bleak system of green-tinged track-and-trace corporativismo, under whose operation there truly will be everything within the state, nothing outside the state, and nothing against the state. The borders to Wuhan have not been opened, they have been merely enlarged to encompass much of the rest of humanity. It is not an iron curtain which has been dropped to contain us, but a green one borrowed from a nearby emergency ward. In a world in which the head of arguably its most important monetary institute can at once say, supposedly to reassure his audience, that we will never run out of money, and yet that his attempt to make good on this boast doesn't have implications for inflation, each passing day also brings to light some new enormity being committed against sound finance, established practice and economic logic. For instance, it would be funny if not so painfully representative of the Swiftian lunacy at work to note that CNBC recently published a piece carrying a triumphant headline that the US government is bringing back a bond from the 1980s to help pay off a record deficit. Then we have the house organ of Davos, the ineffable Financial Times, running an article in which it pushed firmly on the open door of fiscal overreach by arguing that, given that inflation might follow the pandemic, governments should finance their debt at today's ultra-cheap rates with the longest possible maturities. Now let's just translate this piece of casuistry into plain English, shall we? The better to see how shameless is this prescription. While their pet central banks are sitting outside, gloved hands clenching and unclenching on the steering wheel and the engines of the getaway vehicles running, the armed hoodlums of the state should grab as much of our cash as possible now and bundle it into their swag bags before we can react and try to prevent the theft. If the devastation wrought by the authorities' pandemic approach, with its toxic mix of monetary and fiscal overkill and supply-inhibiting, capital-formation-deterring tangle of shifting, pettifogging but quasi-permanent regulations, which they are daily putting in place, leads to an ugly downward spiral in the value of that surplus money, 
Well, at least the political bandits and their armies of functionaries will be sitting pretty while the rest of us scrabble for a living amid the wreckage in which they have condemned us to live. In Britain, where the de jure introduction of negative interest rates seems set to lend a sheen of false legitimacy to their de facto intrusion into the guilt curve, few stop to question whether what is in effect a raid on pensions and a creeping confiscation of savings has been subject to any form of democratic scrutiny. Instead, the nation's elected representatives are content to sit supinely back while the, head of the, appointed, the appointed head of the Bank of England muses publicly about this latest démarche, the latter presumably knowing full well that the market will put the command to his wish and so allow him, allow him later to say that he was only following its orders. The absurdity of this is only heightened by Governor Bailey's recent comment that one of the main challenges he and his minions face is, yes, you guessed it, getting inflation to return back up to target. In the same newspaper interview, he demurred rather unconvincingly to provide a direct answer when asked whether the post-Covid policy should involve austerity, but rather spoiled this display of false modesty by going on to say, what I would say is that I think there are choices, and I think those choices will be looked at very seriously. One of the reasons that the bank is acquiring a much larger stock of government debt than would have been imagined in the financial crisis is that we can help spread over time the cost of this thing to society, providing the overall credibility of the framework remains in place. How much credibility attaches to all this is rather dubious. Statistics are both necessarily partial and highly provisional at the moment, but consider that in April alone, the government exceeded its pre-crisis borrowing target for the full fiscal year. Outlays for the month of £102.3 billion came to around 55% pro rata of the last figure for GDP, a level of output obviously subject to a significant forthcoming reduction, while the £63.5 billion cash shortfall equated to over three-fifths of all that expenditure and to more than a third of national output. For those not familiar with his work, Basel's Professor Peter Bernholtz, after much detailed study of past monetary breakdowns, formulated a rule of thumb that once the budget deficit exceeded 30% of GDP and left 40% of outlays uncovered by any form of revenue, a nation whose finances were in such a parlous state was well on the road to hyperinflation. And the fact that all of the necessary guilt issuance needed to cover that yawning chasm of a shortfall was taken up by the Bank of England's asset purchase scheme and was not met by mobilising, where needed, a still wealthy country's deep pool of savings, can only add to the dangers involved. But wait, the Bank of England's chief economist Andy Haldane explains why this must be so. We can't go back to the jobs nightmare of the 80s, he wails, with all the proxy compassion he can muster, in order to drown out the catcalls from the back of the room, asking insistently, and what part of your mandate is that, mate? As someone who also lived through the era in question, a time of often violent catharsis whose saving grace was that it set the stage for the fossilised Britain of the 1970s to recover an admirable degree of dynamism and flexibility over the succeeding 15 to 20 years, I'm forced to respond ironically that, given the mess which you, Andy, and your pals in Westminster are jointly making of matters right now, we should be so lucky as to return there. But we should not concentrate our ire too exclusively on the denizens of Threadneedle Street. There are, after all, more than a few villains in this cast 
of a global pantomime of folly which we are being forced to attend. Take the US. There, a handsome $3.1 trillion in money and its near substitutes has been added to the pot in the past 11 weeks of turmoil, thanks to the tireless efforts of Chairman Powell to shake the unwholesome fruit from the boughs of the magic money tree. This fantastical sum works out to a dole of 9400 per person, or 44500 per annum equivalent, which again amounts to no less than the entire total of national per capita personal consumption, there in one hit. The poor tooth fairy's wings must be fraying under the exertion of all that to and fro. In Japan, meanwhile, the latest pledge by the central bank is to help finance 75 trillion yen in new programmes over the coming months, which, at around $700 billion in current exchange rates, is also hardly chump change. The European Union may still be haggling over how next to drive coach and horses through its tangle of treaties and overlapping jurisdictions, but its own monetary cardinalate has need, hasn't needed any further prompting and has already swollen its assets by $890 billion in the weeks since the middle of February. A rough and ready tally of the increase in so-called base money created by these three big guns, plus five other of the world's more influential central banks, a list, by the way, which does not include the People's Bank of China, shows they have jointly added, again, $3 trillion to the pot during these past 10 to 12 weeks, an annualised increase of no less than 150%. Now, let us be clear. This type of money is not mechanically multiplied up into higher levels of bank lending as the textbooks and all-too-many-trigger-happy commentators might suggest. Indeed, in a world where interest rates are at or below zero, yield curves are flat and banks are not generically constrained by the reserve quotient, it may simply substitute for regular monetary additions made through everyday commercial channels. But that does not mean that such an inordinate increase is not without consequences. For instance, in China itself, debate has raged recently about whether the law should be changed to enable the central bank to assist the government directly in issuing the 1 trillion yuan of extra bonds it currently proposes to launch as part of its recession-fighting countermeasures. To this point, the People's Bank of China seems to have prevailed in its resistance, its argument best summarised by MPC member Ma Yun's admonitions that to venture into this forbidden territory is to encourage the fiscal authorities to, quote, lose all discipline, with ultimately disastrous results for all. It is not entirely cynical, however, to note that such disputes are partly semantic, since the difference between the bank buying paper directly from the Treasury and acquiring it from other intermediary purchasers or financing them a mere day or two after it has been auctioned is moot indeed. However we view such more or less transparent machinations, what we must not lose sight of is that the balance is yet to be decided between the new monies created, the new loans granted and the new bonds being issued, the latter, by the way, are presently setting records in the US, and the credit which will eventually be destroyed by default write-down or equitization as the casualty list grows. It is partly on these grounds, as well as by appeal to a faulty analogy with the aftermath of the Lehman collapse, that the battle lines between inflationists and deflationists are being drawn. That war has still to be fought, but for our part we find it hard to shake the conviction that the wider the range of activities that the state decides to bail out, underwrite, or take outright command over, 
and the more determinedly it continues to flex its newfound financial freedoms to run large deficits, the less likely all this is to result in net monetary destruction, but rather in a rerouting of revenue streams and a redistribution of what wealth still remains once the crisis passes. As a brief aside, it's here that we run into a crucial issue that the politically convenient doctrine, misleadingly known as modern monetary theory, glibly overlooks. This is that the flaws inherent to its accounting chicanery are not just those which are concerned with inflation or the lack thereof, but rather with the empowerment of the Leviathan warfare welfare state. The separation of sword and purse has been a keystone of Anglophone political liberties for 400 years. These cranks would fuse the two. It is not, after all, canon, which as the Sun King once had it, a ultima ratio regum, the final argument of kings, but the laws of legal tender. To return to our theme, at this stage of events we are all a little like Ben Gunn in the classic adventure story Treasure Island. Gunn has the pirate's loot securely in his control, but, being marooned on the island by his shipmates, he has no opportunity to spend it. Demand here in Contamino Bay has also perforce been severely curtailed, but nowhere, in the developed world at least, has the volume of money and credit been similarly restricted. To echo the Twitterati's favourite half-understood phrase of the day, monetary velocity, the ratio between the stock of spendable claims and the spending currently being done with it, has thus fallen dramatically. But rather than invoke the dark shade of Keynes and mindlessly rehearse his followers' liquidity trap confusions, it is the opportunity to spend, not the means or even the will, that is presently lacking in the main. It should therefore be apparent that it is only when we are again granted parole, and the armed guards standing between us and the shops are stood down, that the clash between monetary evaporation through bankruptcy and the Treasury Central Bank penchant for destructive creation will be able to play out. When it does, this monetary conflict will also involve a real side interplay of failure-depleted demand and greatly impeded supply. No doubt there will be fire sales and falls in the prices of all manner of productive inputs when we first begin to restart the assembly lines and empty the storerooms. Adding to this effect would be the forced retrenchment of those closed down or thrown out of work, and hence with little appetite to spend whatever money they do retain, whether as individuals or firms. On the other hand, supply itself is going to be impaired by the adoption of such rules as two-metre distancing, the mass provision of face masks and hand sanitizers, the observance of strict occupancy ceilings, and the need for extra personnel variously to supply and enforce these changes, as well as to wipe the whole place down after every customer leaves. Furthermore, an already nascent trend to promote onshoring and deglobalization can only be intensified amid the widespread clamour to cut ties to the new pariah nation China, a country whose 21st century urbanisation drive has been one of the key sources of tradable goods disinflation these past two decades. This will drastically reduce the international division of labour and so serve to strengthen the hand of insistent domestic wage bargainers. Reinforcing the effects of such rampant mercantilism and primitive autarky will be the fact that the state will have no appetite whatsoever to resist the demands of its armies of key workers and frontline heroes so fresh from their apotheosis in the faux war on Covid. Even were there to be reluctance to accede to such industrial blackmail, 
The bad science next to be followed will consist of mainstream economist worm tongues whispering their welcome exhortations into willing political ears that any semblance of austerity is to be eschewed if the government is to make up as rapidly as possible for the economic folly of its own lockdowns. Compounding the manifold regulatory frictions will be the ever-present fear of legal tort should either a worker or a customer happen to sicken on one's premises. There will ever inevitably too be a further layer of eco-Soviet five-year planning to restrict full access to the bounties of modern industrial society which will be woven into all the various relief packages. The spreading green finance initiatives and the new normal social engineering transport programs all spring to mind here. Every one of these factors is bound to augment the costs facing every provider of goods and services and simultaneously to reduce the scope for offsetting these costs by means of an increase in their levels of productivity. If we are right in our reasoning here, what this means is that though job rosters may not fully reverse their shrinkage, nor all businesses alas be fit to be reopened, prices will nevertheless rise. And rest assured, a clear majority of our titular monetary guardians will lustily cheer them on when and if they do. Hard times lie ahead. Thank you.